Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. It was his plan to use humankind to tell the world that that was the case. Sounded kind of a crazy plan. It would be like saying, hey, we're, we're going to send uh, a new group to the UN to do all of our negotiation with the world powers. No one over six can go. It's pretty risky business. Six-year-olds have some great qualities. Negotiating sometimes is a very high quality for a six-year-old. You win negotiations? Not so sure. Today I want to talk to you about the fellowship of the leftovers. I don't know how you feel about leftovers. Some people don't seem to like leftovers. Frankly, I don't understand you. It's, it's like a ready meal sitting in the refrigerator waiting for you to show up. You had pizza the night before. There was probably nothing better than cold pizza for breakfast. See, I'm, I'm among friends. I am among the fellowship of the leftover eaters, at least. In my house, my favorite leftover is actually tacos. Now, the tacos stuff, I don't know about your family, but in my family, we do tacos differently than the rest of the world that I've come to know. Um, In my family, we put potatoes in our tacos. Not a totally unusual thing. Tacos con papas. But we also put kidney beans in our tacos. Don't knock until you tried it. Jason. My nephew told me he doesn't eat the kidney beans in the tacos because it reminded him of lamb beans and they're moisture wicking. <laughs> Which somehow makes me thirsty just to think about it. So what happens with the tacos is that since not everybody in the family seems to love the kidney beans inside the tacos, they don't all get eaten. Now normally the taco bits and pieces get put in a single container so you can take the whole thing out, warm up your shell... Fresh taco right, right on, the mat, on the money fast. But somehow those kidney beans always seem to be in over an abundance. Now occasionally, less often than some claim and more often than I'm willing to admit, they stay in the refrigerator too long. And I don't know if you're really aware what happens to a kidney bean in the refrigerator after about a week. But there is no plastic wrap in the world that can keep that inside. Pretty soon, what was kind of a purple, saucy complexity around it kind of gets gray. Don't eat it after that. When it starts to get a little gray, it starts to effervesce. And at that point, you have to make the decision as to whether you're throwing the bowl and the kidney beans away together or not. My suggestion 
Don't do that without your spouse's permission. (laughs) But I have learned over the years that if you go to the garbage can, open the lid, put the bowl over the garbage can, peel back the plastic and dump all in one motion, move away, drop the lid before breathing again, you'll be okay. (laughs) Leftovers. When I say leftovers, you kind of go, you know... Stuff in the fridge, some of it's been there a long time, some of it's going to grow in a mustache. You know, you be careful about the leftovers you eat, right? But we have this term, we pick it up from Revelation chapter 12. The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the remnant of her seed. Do you know what a remnant is? It's a leftover. It's a leftover. It's the scraps left over at the end of something. In fact, in biblical history, and in, in, I think in terms of the ancient Near East, the whole idea of remnant, that part left over at the end, was very significant because it was very tribal. So if you think about everybody breaking up into tribes, your family is a tribe, your family is a tribe, your family is a tribe, and it's very tribal. It was very important that if an enemy attacked it, somebody survived from your tribe, some remnant, some leftover survived so that the bloodline could carry on. I am the last, or I was at the time when I was about to be drafted, the last remaining groff male of my generation. Okay, so you know, you kind of come down, all these girls are born. And then we were down to the, the last remaining groff male of my generation. And so when my draft sort of started to come up, I ended up missing the draft by about a year. They stopped drafting right before I had to sign. Had to, uh, uh, they stopped the draft just as I started signing up. But I was told by those who knew that it would only be in dire cases that they would take the last male in a family line. I don't know if that is true, but it's the same kind of experience. Remnant, the last remaining of that family, that tribal name, was to be protected. And so scripturally, it was not necessarily a bad thing if some member of your family snuck out, escaped, got away, went into hiding when an enemy came and tried to destroy your family because there was a piece left over. There was a little bit left. Very significant biblically. In fact, it's all over the scriptures. Here in Revelation chapter 12, um, we have this phrase. And I, and I have to tell you, what disturbs me about this most is how proud some folks get of being left over. There's a whole movement of people out there who want to be just waving their hands and saying, look at me, I'm the leftovers. I don't think that it's a thing to necessarily be jumping up and down about. There's a reason for it, and a good one, but pride isn't among the reasons. Being proud of being the leftovers isn't among the reasons for the leftovers. Let's see if we can explain some things. We're just going to take a quick look at a couple of places in Scripture. Noah was a remnant. He was a leftover, according to Genesis chapter 7. You remember the story of Noah, right? Noah is living at that time when the earth has gone crazy. Every thought of their minds continuously is evil. And the the chance of the tribe of followers of Jesus is down to eight heartbeats. 
It's down to Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives. Eight heartbeats left. Those eight people are all that's left between nobody talking about God and the next generation knowing about God. That's it. There's a remnant left who has a, have a message, have a connection, have an understanding about God. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those who were with him in the ark. A remnant, a very small one in fact. But does Noah have reason to be proud for being the one left? The Bible says that Noah was chosen by God's grace. Noah wasn't superstar, keep him because he's awesome. Noah was willing to build a big boat. If you read this story, pay attention to the times when God says, Noah, I need you to do this. And the Bible says, and Noah did it. God says, Noah, I want you to do this. And Noah says, okay. You know what qualified Noah the most for being the the last generation? He was willing to say yes to God. The last generation of his time. Why? Because he was willing to say yes to God. You know what one of the qualifying elements of the remnant is? One of the qualifying elements of this leftover group is? They're willing to say yes to God. Now let me ask you something. Does that make you special? Does that still make you in need of grace? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and as the song says, he landed high and dry. Historical records show that Noah's family were not all as faithful as he. True? In fact, they get off the boat and immediately start having problems, right? It's not a few generations till they're they're really trying to rescue themselves, trying to avoid this boat thing next time all all together. Till it's the point where God has to split them up and send them off by different languages because he says, if we allow them to continue to communicate with one another like this, nothing, nothing is beyond their reach. So Noah was a leftover, but not all the members of the group left over were faithful. Are we clear on that? So as you look back, there's a a group back there. There was a group, as we look historically, a group of leftovers. There were eight of them. We can count them. They were not all faithful, but there was enough faithfulness in them. They were covered by the grace of God and rescued as a result. Abraham was a remnant of his generation. Then he believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Stop there for a second. How was he chosen? He believed in God and God's righteousness was extended to him as a result. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Cal- out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Abraham lived in, a, in a, the, one of the biggest cities of his time. If, um, if you were Abraham, you would be living in New York. Okay. Or you would be living in Chicago or you would be living in L.A. Or you would be living in Hong Kong. Or you would be living in Tokyo. You would be living in one of the largest cities of your time. One of the most advanced cities of his time. At a time when, when most people in the world were living in tents and digging holes to use the restroom, they had running water and inside toilets in Ur. 
The Romans would do this, and we would, be, we would just be amazed by later their, their ability to, to funnel water in and, and keep things flowing through the house so that things didn't... You got the picture. They were doing it in Ur of the Chaldees. They were doing this in Ur of the Chaldees. This is like 2000 B.C. Now your plumbing isn't so special, is it? <laughs> Amazing. Earl, he lived in the most advanced, most populated, largest city of his time. And God says, oh, by the way, um, I know you like your house. I know you got that cool inside plumbing thing. Isn't that awesome? I want you to move back to a tent like your ancestors. Ethelin? Come on now. One of the identifying marks is being willing to say yes to the Lord. Yeah, I'm not. That is true. That is true. I'm just preparing you, though. As a prophet speaks into the future. You see, he said, I need you to leave your luxurious house and your beautiful city, and I need you to move away from this nice coastal region that you lived in, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you when you get there. We're going backpacking. Pack up your stuff. Get your kids. We're ready to go. Actually, no kids. We're ready to go. You go, and I'll show you where you are when you get there. You know, I've been backpacking with Pete. Peter DeVries likes to, to kind of go out into the wilderness and take you to places. But he always told me where we were going. I didn't always know for sure. I had a map of my own. had to try to figure things out for sure. But he told me where we were going. Would you be willing to go off on a backpack trip with your whole family and all of your goodies that you can carry to a place they would show you when you got there? You know what's cool about him? When God says, I'd like you to do something, he says, okay. Major qualifying factor for him, he said, yes. I want you to try this. He said, yes. He said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. And he said, God, I'm probably not the best choice for that. My wife is unable to have children. You really can't do that like that. You know what I love about that? So when you say yes to God, he makes a way where there is no way. He takes you on a path that you cannot believe because if you could do it yourself, you would have faith in yourself. But if he does things that you cannot possibly imagine getting done, there's only one place where you can put the credit. God. You know, we keep freaking out a little bit by this seven and a half million dollar price tag. I'm a little freaked out about $7.5 million. never had that kind of money. But I do know that if it's unreachable for us, we'll give God the credit. And isn't that the point? You say yes to God. You go where he's leading. He says, I'm going to show you a place when you get there, Abraham. You'll, you'll recognize it because I'll tell you, you're in the right place. So you're going to walk around the map. And as you keep wandering around the map, there's not going to be an X on the map that says this is the spot. I'm not even going to tell you the name of the spot. You're just going to arrive at the spot one day and I'm going to say, okay, 
Put down your backpack. You're there. And he went off with his family saying yes to God. Chosen by grace. A remnant of his generation. A leftover. A piece. The historical record, by the way, demonstrates they were not all always faithful. Were all the children of Abraham always faithful? No. We can look back. We can count the records. We can see. Abraham and his family left to rule the child. He's saying yes to God. It's a few, a few years later that Lot's off in another city, and he's just in all kinds of trouble. Is Abraham's family, even in that first generation, completely faithful? No. Was Noah's family, even in that first generation, completely faithful? No. And you know what they both had in common, both Noah and Abraham had in common? They didn't know. You know what the remnant group, the, the leftover group, always has in common? They don't know who's faithful. They don't know who's not. You know what's good about that? No one should know. Because as soon as we knew, we'd start picking them out. You know, if the disciples had known that Judas was a Judas, they wouldn't have let him be an apostle. They certainly wouldn't have let him hold the money. Right? Only Jesus knew, and he let him stay as long as possible, trying to turn, his, to turn him to another decision. Are you seeing any patterns yet? Do you know what the Biblical Research Institute is? The Biblical Research Institute is a group that studies biblical concepts for the Adventist church and kind of takes a look at what doctrinal stuff, what biblical support there is for doctrines and things like that. They've been noticing a pattern. It actually started with a professor of mine, Gerhard Hosel, about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when he started writing about this subject. And he said, one of the interesting things about remnant, there's always one in the Bible. There's always one. In fact, there are almost always three referred to. There's almost always a remnant of the past, a faithful remnant or group in the present, and an eschatological one that's coming. There's always a faithful one in the past. And we looked at a couple of them here. We know of a third one. Here's Joseph. He is God's instrument for bringing a remnant of Israel to safety in Egypt. God sent me before you to preserve you, a remnant in the earth, to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's telling his brothers, you didn't throw me in the, into the pit and get me here to Egypt. God sent me to Egypt. I was sent here to help a remnant of the tribe of Israel survive. Were they all faithful? No, not in the least. Not in the least. Why did he choose this group of wandering pilgrims and extract them from Egypt? The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were fewest of all the people, but because the Lord loved you, he kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. Why did he choose this group? Just because he loved them. Just because he loved them. How did they end up going into Egypt? They said yes to God and went where Joseph was. How did they end up getting out of Egypt? They said yes to God and followed Moses out. Over and over again, this is the pattern I'm seeing. Now, what I want you to understand about this is there's not anybody who's got a marching band saying, you guys are awesome. There's never a moment when any of these groups are described as superior. They're all taken in because God cares about them. 
because they find grace, because they find his, his, his heart tuned to theirs. Because they're willing to say yes, and in all of the mess that he knows is coming, if he chooses them, he still chooses them. I like leftover pizza and tacos. But the leftovers are in the freeway leftover too long. They run a little foul. Leftovers are great for a while, but there needs to be another new generation born. There needs to be new doggos, not just old ones. There needs to be a rebirth of the message. The point of having the remnant is to carry a message forward that was important. Why did God call Noah? Because the world was in a difficult place and he needed somebody to help him rescue the world. And so Noah stood up every day for 120 years. At least that's my imagination. Seven days a week he gets up and he preaches the same sermon. There's an end coming. It's going to be messy. It's going to be water over the whole planet. I know you can't imagine that, but just imagine if the river just kept going and overflowing and overflowing and overflowing and overflowing. Water's going to fall out of the sky. It's going to come up out of the ground. Everything's going to be covered. But God has provided a way of escape. This is what we do. Get on the ark. When, our, when this one gets full, we'll build another one. When that one gets full, we'll build another one. Could you imagine what it would have been like if the generation who was listening to Noah had said yes to God as Noah had said and built a fleet of arks? There was no rule that you could only have one ark. I didn't read that in the Bible anywhere. I was just imagining what would happen if there were hundreds of thousands, millions of people who had said, yeah, okay. Okay, as far as this goes, I'm not sure about everything you're saying, Noah, and this thing seems a little crazy, but I trust God, and I'm going with God. So how do you build this thing again? Where do we find the gopher wood? What do we do with pitching? How does that go? What if there had been a whole fleet of arcs being built? You see, all Noah was doing was preserving a message that God had an attempt or was attempting to rescue mankind. And so he told the story over and over again. When the generation next started failing, he calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees so that he might put the next patch in the quilt of leftover pieces. And as he does, he sews around the edges. And around the edges, he starts building altars everywhere he goes. And he builds these altars to God and he worships God. And he begins to demonstrate this to the people around him. His family grows. It grows huge. His flocks grow. They grow huge. And before long, he's a massive group of people walking around. Finally, he actually has a son of his own. And the next generations begin to be born and this group gets bigger and bigger and bigger and God still hasn't given them the promised land but Noah or but but Abraham believed God that he would one day get the promised land and God accounted that as if it were righteousness why because he trusted him and trust was the issue from the beginning trust has been the issue from the beginning what was the problem that that was that was there at the beginning of time what what was the problem in the garden Adam and Eve stopped trusting God what does he want from us that we start saying yes to him and start trusting him again. All the way through the generations of Israel. All the way through the generations of the people who follow God. There is this remnant brought up again and again and again. <coughs> the Assyrians will come and they will destroy the northern ten tribes. And the prophets speak to the remnant left over from the, the ones the Assyrians missed. 
And they call them back to God. They call them back to Jerusalem. They call them back to saying yes to God. The prophets say, you, the remnant of, the, of Israel, come back to God, come back to Jerusalem. Follow God, say yes to God. Now, I told you there's always a present, a past, and a future in this thing. The past group, easy to count. Present group, you can't tell. You can't tell who's the in and who's not, who's the faithful, who's not. People who tell you they can, ask them how. Ask them if they think they're one. If they say yes, talk to somebody else. Because you can't tell. All you can do is in your personal life, in your personal relationship with God, say yes. God says, this is what I'd like you to do. Say yes. This is the direction in your life. Say yes. If you keep saying yes to God, your personal interaction with God, you can know that you've been saying yes. That's the only person you can really know. You can only know that you've been saying yes. Somebody says, I'm part of the remnant. You say, well, okay. Have you been saying yes to God? Okay. Man, makes me a little nervous when somebody starts claiming to know what only God can actually know. You can be descriptive of it. You can say, this is what it says about it in the Bible. Here's what it says here. and Here's what it says there. That's fine. But when you start claiming it for yourself, it makes me a little nervous. There's an interesting statement being made about the remnant to come. The eschatological one, the one of the last days, the one that will come in the future. A statement I'd never read before. In thinking about this particular sermon, I've been looking at different books, reading different things, and I listened to a presentation made by uh, John Pauline, and he pointed this text. I'd never read this text out before. I'm going to read it a, a bit of a bit of it to you. It's from Isaiah chapter 19. It's kind of uh, a little bit of a lengthy passage, but stay with me because I think it's worth it. I think there's a there's a, a huge punchline at the end of this. In that day. One of the ways the Bible talks about the last days, in that day, in that last day. Five cities of the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. Now stop and think about this for a second. This is Isaiah the prophet. What does he know about Egypt? Superpower to the south. All they ever do to us is cause us problems. We try to get their help for stuff, they don't help. We try to get their blessing on stuff, they don't bless. All they do is cause us problems. What does he say? Hey, in the last days, in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's got to be just going, That's, that sounds crazy, God. You sure you want me to write that down? That just sounds like crazy talk. There's no way. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar of the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord in its borders. And it will be a sign and a witness of the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. Now, see, you kind of read this kind of stuff and you go, in the land of Egypt, okay, fine. No, it's like, in the land of Egypt. Egypt. It's a big deal. See, we, we're so disconnected from this stuff that we don't recognize stuff when we see it. 
He said there will be an altar to the Lord in the land of Egypt. They will call on the name of the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. This is when Israel is an enemy with Egypt. This is when Egypt is the big bully down the block constantly picking on them. This is when Egypt has been anti-God for as long as anyone has known. And now the prophet is saying, look, I am telling you right now, in the future... I will stake my claim in the land of Egypt. Isaiah himself would have been blown away. And if we could resurrect Isaiah today. Imagine what it would be like if you could pull old Isaiah up and and take him out today. And just start showing him churches. These are all followers of God. These people, these people, these. Look at these people. These are all followers of God. Really? Those are Egyptians. Yeah. Hundreds of years. Thousands of years. God has had followers in Egypt. That's not just, that's just not the end of it. It will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And they will cry to the Lord because of their oppressors. And the, and the Lord, and he will send them a savior. And a mighty one, and he will deliver them. And then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and he will make sacrifices and offerings. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, or, and the Lord will strike Egypt, he will strike and heal it. And they will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, get the last part. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Who's Assyria? They're the nasty nation to the north that keeps picking on poor Israel. You got the nasty neighbors in the in the south, you got the nasty neighbors in the north, you got the desert in the east and the ocean in the west. There's no place to go. You live in a bad neighborhood and all the people around you are mean. And God just said there's going to be a highway between your two meanest neighbors. Guess where the highway has to go? Right through the middle of your neighborhood. Here's community redevelopment, freeway, your neighborhood. There's going to be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will come into Egypt, the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. Here's Isaiah. And he's writing chapter 19. He's been talking to God for a while. He's up to the 19th chapter and God says, Oh, I want you to tell the people about what happens in the end. At the, the last remnant who are rescued from the earth, I want you to describe it for the people. Here's how it's going to be. The Egyptians will serve God. And oh, by the way, there will be a highway between the Egyptians and the Syrians. They will love each other so much, they'll be going back and forth to each other's states. And oh, by the way, I want to add one more thing. There will be you, the children of Abraham. I've already told you, I will bless those who bless you. I will bless the world through you. And Egypt and Assyria will be partner two and partner three. There are going to be three blessings in the world, you, Egypt, and Assyria. And then God stood back and he smiled while Isaiah's head went, 
no way the prophet could understand what he just said. You see, that last remnant is always bigger, more international, broader, broader in scope, and beyond our imagination. There's always a past group which you can identify. You can look at it and say clearly, oh, yeah, yeah, Noah, Abraham, Israel out of Egypt, Joseph. In yeah, there's always a group who's faithful. You can look back and you can see their faithfulness. In the present, there's always a group who is faithful, but you never really know what group that is. You're never really certain of how that works. In the future, the group is going to be so amazing. It's going to blow your mind. They're going to build highways between enemies. And it's going to go right through your house. And you're going to be a blessing, and they're each going to be a blessing too. There's no way to imagine what that looks like going forward. I wanted to speak to you about this topic because we have within us a need to be special. As humans, as different segments of the family of God, we all want to be different and special. And special is okay. But I want you to understand what the point of remnant is. The point of remnant is not identi to identify you as special. It's to give you a job. The point of remnant is simply, hey, I've got some information I need to communicate with the next generation. I've given that information to you. Pass it on. The point of remnant is so that the information is not lost, that the tribe's identity is not lost, that the, the people of God are not lost, that the next generation is telling the next generation who's telling the next generation until Jesus comes. Amen. Remnant is a good thing because without it, nobody learns. The message doesn't get carried forward. The remnant of people who are saying yes to God, who have faith and trust in Jesus. That's what this is about. It's, it's, it's the example of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through the history of Israel. Those who stayed faithful and said yes to God carried that message on forward, carried that message on forward. And we have them to thank for knowing it today. It wasn't easy to be a prophet. If you doubt what I'm saying, read Hosea. It's a short read this afternoon. If you want a little longer read, read Jeremiah. It wasn't easy, but they said yes. They said yes. Christianity is a remnant. Christianity is a remnant out of Judaism. The Apostle Paul, describing in Romans chapter 12, says... Speaking of Israel and speaking of us, the Christians, he says, I ask you then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? In other words, has God closed the door on Israel? Has he rejected them? Is he moving on? Because remnant requires that it's from the previous generation, right? If you're going to have a remnant, there has to be an original, right? If I'm going to have leftover tacos, we have to have eaten tacos, right? If I'm having leftover pizza, we have to have eaten pizza, right? So there had to be an original pizza for me to have pizza now, right? For pizza to be in my fridge, we had to have pizza yesterday. Is that clear? Okay, so in order for there to be a remnant, there has to be an original, right? In order for there to be a, a piece of pizza in the fridge, there had to be an original pizza that not everybody got hold of, right? My kid wasn't there. I ask you then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Next phrase, of course not. 
proof. I myself am an Israelite. Paul says, I'm exhibit A. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. Clearly he hasn't rejected the people because I'm here. Right? So then it's obvious to everyone then that God hasn't fully rejected Israel because I'm an Israelite. A whole bunch of you are Israelites, in fact. Of course not I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people whom he has chosen from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scripture says about this? He's going to tell us. Elijah the prophet complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. You remember this story? Elijah has told the king of of the northern ten tribes, Ahab, that there will be a famine in the land for three and a half years, 1260 days, three and a half times, 42 months. gets picked up by Daniel. You should read these. In January, we're going to start a little series on Daniel. I just thought I'd bring that up. He says there's going to be a famine in the land because there's going to be no dew nor rain for that time. Takes off, disappears. They can't find him. King searches for him everywhere. Can't find him. Elijah finally comes back three and a half later, just on time. He had said he would. Comes back, introduces himself to the king, calls for a showdown between himself, whom he declares to be the last remaining prophet, and all the prophets of, of Baal and Asherah. Bring him up on Mount Carmel. They have a little prophetic duel. Baal and Asherah, they build their altar. Remember the story? He says, build your offer, make your sacrifice, and then plead to your God that he will light the offering on fire. Now, Baal is supposed to be in charge of lightning. So what's Baal supposed to do? Pretty simple. Shoot a little lightning at this thing. All right. You ask Baal to help that help with that. Go ahead. All day long they ask. All day long they ask. All day long they ask. He gets taunting them before this thing is over. He seriously, if you read it, it's, it's worse in the Hebrew than it is in the English. He's taunting them. The Hebrew says, has Baal gone and covered his feet? In other words, has Baal gone to the restroom? He's taunting them. End of the day comes. At the end of the day, he builds an altar, digs a, a trench around it, covers the, put his, uh, puts his offering on it, pours water over the whole thing till it's soaked, and the trench is filled up with water. He kneels down, he prays. Fire comes down from God out of heaven, consumes the offering, consumes the altar, and the Bible says, laps up the water that was in the trough. He says to Israel, choose. Either God is God or Baal is God. Pick one. He runs off ahead first of the king because the rain starts to fall. Then he hears about the queen wanting to kill him and he runs off into the desert. Finds himself in a cave and this is where he has this confrontation with God where he says, I'm the last one left. There is nobody here but me and now the queen's trying to kill me. He's saying, I'm the sole member of the remnant. Right? He says, I'm the last piece of pizza in the fridge. I'm the, and it's a little slice. It's not even much. I'm it. And now they're trying to kill me too. Paul continues, as does God. Do you remember what God's reply? He said, nope. I have 7,000 others who have never bowed a knee to Baal. 
You're not alone. You just don't know. You're not alone. You just don't know. Just keep saying yes to God. You're not alone. You just don't know that all around you are people who are saying yes as well. You're not alone. You just don't know. You see, there's a past remnant you can always see. There's a present remnant you can't really identify. There's a future remnant that's going to be blowing your mind when it comes. Who's the past remnant here? The people of Israel. Who's the present remnant? The one. Who is the past remnant? From Paul's perspective, the children of Israel. Who's the present remnant? The Christian believer. It is the same today. For a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace. His undeserved kindness in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. You get to be part of this group by saying yes to God because as soon as you lean into him and begin to trust, he covers you with his grace. That's it. And then he gives you a job. Go tell somebody else what I did for you. God always has had a remnant. They were always chosen by grace. They were always called to point people to God's redemptive solution. Wouldn't it make sense that if that were the case then, it would be the case now? So the big question about remnant is not identity. It is, how are we doing with our calling? If we are to tell people, like Noah, there's a way off the planet. This thing is going to blow up one day, but there's a way off. There's a way out of the mess that your life is in. There's a way out of the sin that's dragging you down. There's hope. If that's our calling, then that's our calling. And the only question is not who is in and who is out, but how are we doing with our calling? The universal church is composed of all who truly believe in Christ. Three dots mean? It's an ellipse. Things have been taken out. I took them out. Every believer is called to have a personal part in this world-wide witness. Friends, can you get what I'm trying to say? The idea of being a people who serve God, say yes to God, and tell the next generation what happens when you do is the idea that has carried forward the message from the beginning. And in the days that we live in, when the earth seems to be going horribly, when things that you can't believe happen in places that you know and places you've never heard of, 
when you look at the news and you say, man, this can't go on much longer. It's way too dangerous out there. When you start worrying about the future of your family and your children, your grandchildren. Not because you're worrying about their education, but because you're worrying about their survival. When the world gets to that point, the calling on the people who follow God is the same. Say yes to God. Tell other people that there's an answer to their problem. And it's Jesus. Let's pray.